0: you stand this morning as Teresa comes to read our scripture from the Sermon on the Mount.
1: You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord from Matthew 5, 38 through 48.
0: Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I want to start us off this morning with a church sign. Don't you love a good funny church sign. I'm going to give you a second to take this one in and see if you can uh, kind of put it together. God holds each accountable for sin and will, the way I read it, and will punish Pastor Larry. Pastor Larry Wilhite. I read this and I think um, either they should have used better wording or some punctuation or poor Pastor Larry is in big, big trouble for something he did. This is also, by the way, a reason why we keep things very simple on our sign out here because this is a, an easy way to make big mistakes. Good old poor Pastor Larry, uh, he was preaching a message that, as I look at the sign, may not have drawn me to want to come to the church that day, but the topic of sin is really at the heart of this section of the Sermon on the Mount. Sin is something that the Bible talks about often. It's one of the most mentioned words. And we are so thankful as we read through the Gospels that when Jesus talks about sin, he, like he does here in the Sermon on the Mount, gets to the heart of it. As we are finishing out this section in chapter 5, Jesus has been walking through six different well known commands from the Hebrew Scriptures, from the Old Testament. And he's saying about these commands, it's not just about the letter of the law. What God is most concerned with is, does he have your heart? And are, are the words of his law, are, are the words of scripture written on your heart? Have they transformed the person that you are? This isn't just about being religious. This isn't just about following the rules or not breaking the rules. This is about all of our hearts, all of our attitudes, all of our lives. That's where God wants to root out sin, not just at the level of your religious behavior, but at the very center of your being and who you are. Jesus has been walking through these different commands and describing what the transformed life looks like. As we finish out the first of three chapters of the greatest sermon ever preached, as we continue through our journey in the Summer of the Mount, we started with the Beatitudes, then We talked about what it looks like to be salt and light and to demonstrate to others that that transformation that Christ brings to us has indeed happened. And today as we finish out this chapter where Jesus began this section by saying, I did not come to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill it. I came to to show you through my perfect teaching and my perfect life what God's law and the heart of God's commands really are supposed to mean to the true disciple who commits his life, who commits her life to following me, to following Jesus closely. And I hung this statement over this now four weeks ago as we started this section. This is what the transformed life is all about. That God sees all of our hearts, all of our ways, all of our steps and he commands us to pursue Christ likeness in them all and today we move to maybe what are the two most difficult ones for us to be able to put into practice not seeking revenge and retaliation and loving our enemies so much so that we even pray that good things would happen to them we continue on here in Matthew chapter 5, beginning with the fifth command, which talks about revenge. True disciples, Jesus is saying here, seek redemptive relationships, not revenge, because we have been redeemed. Because we have been redeemed, even when we're wrong, we don't seek to bring wrong, evil upon others. But we look for redemptive ways to continue on in our relationships with others. And the commandment that Jesus deals with here, starting in verse 38, you've heard it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Now I want you to think for a minute, these commands come from the word of God which means that these commands when jesus says you've heard it was said these commands actually belong to him if these are the words of god if this is the inspired word that god has given to his people then these commands don't just come from our heavenly father but they come from christ the son and so what i hear jesus saying throughout this section is you've heard that it was said but i'm going to tell you what i really meant Jesus is speaking in the first person. I'm going to tell you what's at the heart of the law. This is what I really meant by this. And clearly in so many of these circumstances, they were being misunderstood, mistaught, misrepresented by the leaders and the teachers. Here's what I meant, Jesus said. Evil's going to happen. One person is going to wrong another person. The law, as it was written and given to Moses, was was not just a moral code, it was also a civil code that helped the people navigate legally their relationships with each other. Because one person is going to wrong another, the the law was sort of given in that civil way to keep things equal in terms of consequences. If you're wronged, eye for an eye, you don't get to then enact more punishment on the person than the damages that were done to you, but to sort of keep things on an equal footing and, and to help restrict people from taking the law into their own hands through anger God just sort of made this simple eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth the opportunity here was to limit revenge and retaliation to keep consequences on evil footing the law that Jesus references here famously has been called lex talionis in Latin it's the law of retaliation one of the most well-known laws throughout Scripture. But what Jesus is saying, again, getting to the heart of the law, is the true disciple who's living the transformed life, whose commitment, obedience to God goes far beyond just the letter of the law. This is more than just limiting revenge. Jesus is saying, if you are my disciple, you won't seek revenge at all. You will not pursue revenge retaliation even when you're wronged at all. And boy, this is incredibly hard teaching. And as Jesus does so often throughout the Sermon on the Mount and in all of his teaching, he he gives some examples about what it looks like to abandon revenge. Some, Some practical examples from their culture that everybody would understand. The first example is if someone gets smacked on their cheek. They get slapped across the face. The language that Jesus is using here actually is of what was one of the most severe insults in the ancient Near Eastern culture. Not to slap someone open-handed, but to backhand them across the face. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a setting where someone has been smacked that hard across the face with the back of their hand. I pray that's never happened to you, but you may have witnessed it you may have experienced it I'll never forget the time that I saw this happen it was just a few years ago we were in India people in in the the central Asian part of the world and the further you move east their their cultures in many ways still mirror a lot of things like we read in scripture and and in our culture we might punch somebody if we're angry But the the ultimate sign of disrespect even today in the eastern part of the world is the slap or the backhand We were in a hotel lobby in india and uh, These two guys were arguing We didn't realize they were arguing because they were speaking a different language than we understood And all of a sudden this guy reared his hand back and smack across the face You could hear that smack echo throughout that hotel lobby. I will never forget that sound Absolute sign of disrespect Everybody had to grab and restrain the guy that got smacked because it was about to be taken to a different level. This is the picture Jesus is giving. This is an a, a incredible sign of disrespect, an act of violence meant to incite further violence. And yet Jesus says, if anyone smacks you, backhands you on the right cheek, do not advance further. Do not retaliate. You might even turn to them the other cheek also and give them an open opportunity to hit you again. The second example, a person could sue someone in in the first century culture. They could sue them to take something of value. And in terms of the clothing that a person would wear, oftentimes their tunic, their shirt, was the most valuable piece that they owned. And yet Jesus says, if someone sues you to take your shirt, your tunic, Give to them your outer garment also. Ancient culture, especially among the Jewish people, they would wear a shirt, they would have a loincloth, a girdle, sandals, and an outer garment. To give both the tunic and the outer garment was to, to go beyond what would ever be expected or required. And yet Jesus says, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, give them your overcoat also. And then the third example... If anyone forces you to go one mile, Jesus says, go with them too. You've probably heard that in Roman-occupied Israel, a Roman soldier could force someone by law to carry his belongings. He could force a person to carry his pack or something that he was toting to carry it at least one Roman mile, which was something like 1,000 paces, something like 4,000 feet. We see an example of this when Jesus is carrying his cross There's a man named Simon of Cyrene who a Roman soldier forces to take Jesus' cross and then carry it further. An example in Scripture of how this law was enacted. And yet Jesus says, and boy, this one had to be really hard when his people were thinking about the Romans who were occupying them, exploiting them, doing harm to them on a regular basis. If anyone forces you to go one mile, Don't just go one, go with them two. Jesus says if anything like these common situations should occur, the true disciple should act and should give in a way that exceeds what is common, in a way that exceeds even what is expected. As a living picture of the grace of God that has redeemed us from sin the true disciples should live in such a way so mercifully with such a high level of forgiveness with such a continual posture of generosity that it can't help but to be countercultural people can't help but to notice the difference in us because we are willing to go the extra mile. We're willing to give beyond what is expected. We're willing to not retaliate even when we are disrespected to the highest level. These commands are far beyond, listen, far beyond what any of us can accomplish, any of us can do and live out without the Holy Spirit of God in us and leading us but through the transformation that Christ brings through living as true disciples who have the word of God written on our hearts it is even possible to live with this kind of mercy and love and forgiveness and generosity this though was clearly not what the scribes and the Pharisees were teaching about lex talionis eye for an eye tooth for a tooth You can read throughout the stories of Jesus' interactions with the scribes, the Pharisees, even the Sadducees in the Gospels, and you can see that in case after case, the religious leaders, the teachers, those who had been entrusted to preach God's Word correctly to the people were not living out the commands in their hearts. They were always looking for an exception, for a justification, a way to take God's law, God's Word, and weaponize it to use it for their own goals and personal gain. They found ways to justify taking the law into their own hands, taking revenge. If you doubt me on that, all you have to do is think about their interactions with Jesus when ultimately he finds himself on the cross. Similarly, there have been multiple evangelical leaders in our culture, in our nation in the last few years Who have made statements like this is not the time for turning the other cheek this is not the time for restraining ourselves in terms of anger revenge frustration no this is a time where culturally we should be on the attack and we should strike them before they strike us but i ask you does does that kind of mentality ever square with the teaching of jesus with the example of jesus is there ever a time where we get to choose that it's our time to make an exception and to set aside the teaching of our master and our savior and say this doesn't apply now because obviously jesus didn't quite know the kind of enemies we were going to face the kind of things that would happen to us in a culture like ours no jesus was experiencing the same things we are He was, in in fact, preparing his disciples for a time when they were going to experience poverty and persecution. Their lives were not going to be easy as they followed Jesus. Most of them lost their lives because they were Jesus' disciples. And what Jesus is calling for here is that kind of radical, transformational living That the way we live exceeds that which is expected, that which is even common. If you doubt that, again, look at verse 42. Give to the one who asks you. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. I love what Jesus says later on in Matthew 10. Freely you have received, so freely you should give. Now, does this mean that the true disciples should never resist evil? Does this mean that we should never fight for ourselves or fight for someone we love? Does this mean that we should simply allow ourselves to be a doormat so that people might trample on us for the rest of our lives? No, I don't think that's what it means. There are times where Jesus openly resisted evil. Jesus openly confronted the Pharisees the scribes, the teachers of the law. Jesus stood up for himself and for what was right in the sight of the high priest, Caiaphas, in front of the Roman governor, Pilate. Paul, later on, would would even appeal to his rights as a Roman citizen in order to, to try to seek justice for himself. And time after time, the church is commissioned and called to stand for justice, to stand for that which is right. Jesus is not saying we should be a doormat. He's not saying we should never stand up for what is right. Certainly there are times where we should resist evil. But what he's calling us here is to resist that temptation that we have in human nature. That when someone strikes us personally, we should strike them back personally. And when someone is not on our team, not on our side... We've lost respect for them or they have openly disrespected us that we shut them out and all that we do towards them and wish upon them is evil. Evil for evil, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Jesus says that the heart of the law is this condition that the people of God live in where they recognize and realize how much mercy they have received from God. How much love and forgiveness God has bestowed upon them. And because of that, they live with that same posture that God has shown to them in their relationships with others. And in doing so, the way they live exceeds what everyone else does. Listen, though, where this really gets put to the test is in this last command that Jesus deals with. Where he goes even further and he says, true disciples, not, it's not only that they don't seek revenge... True disciples love, honor, and pray for everyone, even our enemies. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. I love what John Stott said about this last one. Nowhere is the challenge of the Sermon on the Mount greater than here. Nowhere is the distinctness of the Christian counterculture more obvious. And nowhere is our need of the power of the Holy Spirit more compelling than in this commandment. Kingdom living. Kingdom attitudes. Kingdom character. It's demonstrated most through love. Love is to be so central in the heart of the true disciple, again, that it exceeds the way most others live and what most others do. In in this case, that, that it's resisting that natural tendency not only to retaliate against people, but to only love those who love us back and to hate those who hate us, to hate in our heart those who we would call our enemies. Look at the way Jesus bookends these commands. The very first one, he said, you've heard that it was said, do not murder, but I tell you that true disciples hold selves, themselves to a much higher standard than just, I'm not going to kill you. True disciples resist anger and hatred because anger and hatred flow in the same stream as murder. Murder. And when those things are in our heart, it is as if we have already committed that physical act of violence. That's where Jesus began. And then here he says, I tell you, it's not enough to just love those who love you. You're also called, commissioned, following Christ's example, to love your enemies and pray for your enemies, even the ones who persecute you. You know what I think Jesus is doing here? He's not just talking to us about our prayer life. Again, he's giving us something very practical. One of the most practical ways we can love our enemies and learn to grow in our love for enemies is if we, in fact, pray for them, our enemies, those who persecute us, pray for them on a regular basis. Man, that is hard to do. And that's one thing if we're praying like the imprecatory psalms. You know the imprecatory psalms? Those are the psalms where David and others, they pray for their enemies. They pray for their destruction. That's easy to do. It's easy to pray for our enemies when we're praying for their destruction or we're praying that God would fix them or that God would get them. That's easy. I think what Jesus is getting at here is that we would genuinely find ourselves in a place where we pray for good for our enemies. We pray for success for our enemies and those who persecute us. Because when we pray for them in that manner, it continues to open up our heart. It's really hard to hate someone who you're genuinely praying that good things would happen for them. Jesus is very practically saying, if you can get to a point where you pray for those who are against you, those who hate you, pray for good things, then then that love for them will grow in your heart right alongside the ways that you're praying for them. I remember several years ago, my father-in-law Glenn had gone through a season where many different people had done wrong to him. And as his family, we watched this happen. We saw the righteous and pious ways that our father glenn was living and we saw the the ungodly tactics that people were using but it was amazing over a period of months to see how glenn's heart was so filled with love and forgiveness and i remember asking him about that this was years ago how have you seemed to get to this point where you have peace with all you endured and he said literally i've been practicing what jesus says in matthew 5 i've been praying for each and every one of those people by name and not praying that God would get them, but praying that God would move in their life and that they would be blessed. I have to be honest. There have been some people in my life who have wronged me, and it is not near as easy for me to get to that point. I have not gotten to that point near as quickly as I watched my father-in-law Glenn do. But Jesus is saying, if we can develop that kind of prayer life What John Chrysostom called the very highest summit of self control, that we pray for our enemies and those who persecute us, our love for them will grow at the same time. The true disciple, being transformed into the image of Christ, continually is learning what it means to die to ourselves, to take up our cross and to follow Jesus. It's such a temptation in our hearts and especially in Western culture to always demand our rights and demand what we think we deserve. But Jesus is saying here, the heart of the true disciple is different than that. The heart of the true disciple is one that puts others first, even those who mean to do us harm. This is hard teaching. Indeed, as some have said, this is impossible. What Jesus is asking for here is impossible. But I'll remind you, as we've said, about anger through this section, lust, marital relationships and divorce, letting our yes be yes and our no be no, revenge, retaliation, loving our enemies, all of this, yes, these things are impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Without Him, listen, we can do nothing that is good. But with God, all things are possible, even living with this kind of posture of self-sacrifice and love towards others. I think it's all too appropriate that the Sunday we come to the, the last part of this text, we're also honoring Philip and Mary Ann Stevens. I can think of no two people who I've ever served with in ministry who model grace, kindness, patience, self-sacrifice, and generous investment in others and in the kingdom than, than those two. And here, that's the kind of posture, heart, character that Jesus is talking about. That we would love our enemies, pray for our enemies. There's a similar passage to this in Luke 6. And in that passage, Jesus not only says, pray for our enemies, but he says, do good to them and give generously to them. He even takes it so far as to say, if you lend to your enemy, don't expect anything in return. And I think Jesus is saying that in a twofold way. First of all, in your heart, just give to them, but also don't expect anything in return because it's probably not coming from your enemy. Be merciful, Jesus says, as your Father is merciful. Because he points out in Luke 6, just as he does here, Even notorious sinners and exploiters like tax collectors love people who love them back. The true disciple is called to a much higher standard than that. We hear echoes in Jesus' words here of the Beatitudes. In in the Beatitudes, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Jesus says here, Love your enemies, Pray for those who persecute you so that you will be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. The good and the evil experience similar things, but the true disciple surpasses, exceeds all of that. The true disciple stands out because of his or her Christ-likeness. And listen, this is another example. Yes, Christ gave us a hard teaching, He gave us a hard command here but we can look at examples from his own life where he modeled for us what this looks like. Peter, the disciple, the apostle talks about this in 1 Peter 2. He says to this kind of honorable living you've been called because Christ suffered for you leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin. No deceit was ever found in his mouth. And listen peter's talking about christ's arrest his false prosecution his beating and his crucifixion when they hurled their insults at him he did not retaliate when he suffered he made no threats instead he entrusted himself to him who judges justly he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness it's by his wounds that we that you have been healed christ set this example for us and he showed us how loving enemies how loving those who wrong you how deep that can go because through his death we've received forgiveness we wronged him We set ourselves up as his enemies. This is the message of the gospel. Though we were enemies of God, we sinned against him, we did every kind of wrong towards our heavenly father. He still gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not have to experience eternal death, but will live forever in Jesus Christ. The salvation that Jesus offers is the picture, the perfect picture of God's grace. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. In fact, we deserved the opposite of what we've received. We deserved deserve death, not life. But Jesus loved us so much. He modeled this love so much that he, through his body on the cross, made it possible that our wounds can be healed. True disciples, love and honor and pray for everyone even our enemies and if this teaching was hard for us jesus just simplifies it don't you love the end he just says look all of this was hard just be perfect isn't that doesn't that sound easy just be perfect therefore as your heavenly father is perfect and all will be good yes that's that sounds right and true here's what i think jesus really means at the heart of that this is what we've been saying all along. True disciples pursue Christ likeness in all of our hearts, all of our ways, and all of our steps. You know that word perfect in Greek, it means something more like we've we've finished the goal. We, we've finally arrived at completeness. And, and the word in Aramaic that probably Jesus used when he said this in person, it's a word that means all embracing. Here's another way you might say it. That no area of your heart or life is untouched by the transformational work of God in Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be perfect. That no area of our hearts or our lives, every part of our hearts, our ways and our steps, that all of it is surrendered to Christ. And that transformational work that Christ is bringing, it is all-encompassing. It is all-embracing. Every single part of us is touched by His transformational work. Every part of us, inside and out, we are complete in Christ Jesus. And as our Heavenly Father is perfect, we imitate Him. And yes, this is impossible, but with Him, all things are impossible. The true disciple pursues christ likeness because god sees all of our hearts all of our ways all of our steps we pursue christ likeness in all of those areas and the true disciple no matter how far down the path of righteousness we are there's still room for improvement right there's always some new area of obedience that we're aiming for we are never complete until we are complete in christ jesus There is always something to strive for in being more like Christ. And again, nowhere is the challenge of the Sermon on the Mount greater than when it comes to loving our enemies and modeling what Christ has done for us. But this can happen. This transformational work of Jesus Christ can happen when we become an entirely new creature. When we experience What scripture describes as dying to our sins and transgressions And being raised to life new life in jesus christ today as we Bring this time of worship to a close at least this part This is an opportunity for you to surrender your all to jesus christ you may have done that sometime in the past, but If you're honest with yourself and with god today, you're not living in that surrender in every area of your life today So you may want to spend this time as we sing in just a moment Just you and the and the lord one-on-one surrendering your all to him again If he's shining a light on a certain area of your life Where you need to die to that sin and maybe today you say that god I need this part of me to to die again And I need to surrender it back to you But maybe just maybe somebody's here today. Somebody's watching online today You've been living your whole life to this point in complete rejection of God. You've set yourself up as an enemy and you have done everything you can to resist that surrendering your all to him. This is the best opportunity you've ever had right here, right now, today to take a step of obedience, to say to the Lord, to say to God who created you in Jesus Christ, to say today, I am giving my all. And you can experience through the confession of your sin and turning away from your sin that transformational work that happens in your heart and life where you become an entirely new creature and you become a true disciple of Jesus Christ. There is no higher purpose than that, than surrendering your all and living your all for him. Would you bow your heads with me? And as I lead us in a prayer, just a prayer here of of opening up our hearts to the Lord. If you know Christ is calling you to step out today and to surrender your life, the call has gone out. This is your opportunity to do that after I pray and when we stand and sing. Lord, I thank you today for all the examples that we have talked about of Christ's likeness. Thank you for Philip and Marianne and I think of so many others in our church who are such examples of holiness and godliness. But today, Lord, this is not about any of them. I pray that you would focus the eyes of our hearts on Jesus Christ. Today that we would look to him, we would look to the cross, and we would surrender our all. I pray for anyone here today who may feel like they're holding back today. Lord, would you help them to give their all wherever they are. And as we've lifted up the name of Jesus, would you draw people to yourself in Jesus' name. Amen.